Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning, and and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. In today's report, WFHB correspondent Brianna Devon covers a story of community activism in the face of environmental catastrophe. Devon speaks with professor and journalist Steve Higgs and community activist Linda Green about the history of PCB contamination after the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency removed three sites from its national priorities list. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. A new report from the nonprofit environmental law firm, Earth Justice, finds that clean closures are far better economic and environment solutions to leaking coal ash impoundments than our cap-in-place approaches. The study reinforces the view of many Indiana environmentalists that the best way to clean up toxic coal ash is by removing it rather than leaving it in place. Coal ash is the waste produced from burning coal and often is stored in unlined impoundments. Earth Justice's report examined the Michigan City Generating Station in Indiana along with two others in South Carolina and Montana. Tim Maloney, Senior Policy Director at the Hoosier Environmental Council, says that for many years, Indiana's coal ash was virtually unregulated. He adds that the pollution can be harmful to both human health and aquatic life when it causes toxic metals to leak into the groundwater. Indiana has more coal ash surface impoundments than any other state and many are closing because of federal regulatory measures for leaking impoundments put in place in 2015 by the EPA. Some utility companies are proposing a leave-it-in-place approach, draining surface water and capping the pond. But Maloney says clean closure, fully removing the ash, is better for the economy and the environment. Maloney says Indiana's many impoundments could better be served as locations for clean energy generation. Maloney points to findings in the report that a clean closure of the Michigan City coal plant would better protect the water for the surrounding community, which is nearly 40% people of color and more than 45% low income. Question. What city in Indiana generates almost all of its power from solar panels? A hint. It's not Bloomington or Carmel or Fishers. The city is located in the southern half of the state. The population is about 7,000. This $5 million project is to be paid back over the next 15 years, made possible without raising taxes. Breaking it out into two separate installations, one being replacing all lights, including street lights, with LED, and the second installing solar panels. This project tallied more than 7,000 solar panels 
at 17 different city-owned sites, along with more than 550 LED light installations. The life of a typical insured panel is generally around 25 years, although many panels have been known to last well beyond that and still function at about 80%. In terms of durability, most panels can handle golf ball-sized hail at 60 miles per hour. While the city is producing solar energy, the city is still connected to the electricity provided by Duke Energy and REMC. When there are electric needs and there is enough solar energy being produced, solar is all that is used. However, when there isn't enough solar production and there is a need for energy, the system then uses electricity from the electric companies. The city does not use batteries to store solar energy. Any extra solar production is purchased back by Duke Energy and REMC at a set price that becomes credits on customers' electric bill. The idea is to have enough credits to cover the electric usage month to month, thus having a net zero electric bill. The credits carry over from month to month until they are used up. The mystery city is North Vernon. After more than a month of keeping their bird feeders inside to slow the spread of an unknown disease killing birds across Indiana, Hoosiers in 76 counties can now bring those bird feeders back out, the Indiana Department of Natural Resources announced Monday. Hoosiers in Marion, Hamilton, Hancock, Hendricks, Johnson, and some other counties, however, should continue to keep their bird feeders inside. On Tuesday, the DNR clarified their statement to say that Monroe County remained closed to bird feeders. The DNR asked people to bring in the bird feeders in late June after hundreds of songbirds were found sick and dying. The department launched an investigation around the same time, but has not yet found out what the cause of the illness is. The Texas Commission on Environmental Quality is contemplating issuing an air permit to the company Max Midstream for what would be a devastating project. Max Midstream is a little-known oil company funded by a British billionaire. The company wants to dredge a mercury-laden Superfund site in Matagorda Bay on Texas's Gulf Coast and build a massive crude oil export facility there. The Max Midstream dredging and oil export facility would harm the health of local residents, especially fishing communities, who rely on Matagorda Bay for their livelihoods. The project would emit dangerous chemicals including carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxide, hydrogen sulfide, and volatile organic compounds, which are detrimental to human health and the climate. Max Midstream claims it doesn't need to use the best available pollution control technologies. Public comments seem to be making a difference. After community members submitted almost 90 requests for a public meeting in just 48 hours, the Commission agreed to hold a meeting on the proposed permit and extended the deadline for written comments. Close to 30 oil and gas export projects are planned along the Gulf Coast. Those projects are dangerous for communities and the climate, especially if done with weak pollution rules. The local community says it can't afford to let the Commission rubber stamp the Max Midstream permit. Florida manatees are dying at a record pace. The current total is 881 so far in 2021 already more than twice as many deaths as in all of 2020. These gentle, curious mammals are starving to death and swimming through some of the worst pollution they've ever known. Meanwhile, boat strikes remain a constant threat. 
the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has begun a review to determine what protections manatees need under the Endangered Species Act. Manatees are now listed as threatened, but it's clear they urgently need the full power of the act. The manatee die-off has already taken more than 10% of their population, and it isn't stopping. Pollution from fertilizers, pesticides, and human waste is poisoning the water they live in and depleting the seagrass they eat. Boats keep plowing into them, cutting them up with propellers, and killing them through blunt force trauma at staggering rates. This summer, the Biden administration suspended the recently awarded leases granted to companies to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, thereby halting the sell-off of over 1.5 million acres in Alaska that are home to polar bears, caribou, and other wildlife that drilling could exterminate. The U.S. Senate is also considering legislation to permanently protect the refuge from drilling. Despite all this good news, Drilling in the refuge could be back on the table. Pro-drilling senators are trying to reopen the Arctic to drilling right away. Those senators are working to force a vote immediately to reopen the refuge to oil and gas drilling and new lease sales. Stopping drilling in the Arctic doesn't just protect the creatures living there. It's critical to stopping the climate crisis too. In the spring, the International Energy Agency released a report making it clear that to avert the worst effects of global warming, governments must immediately stop approving any new coal plants or oil and gas fields. If UK animal welfare activists have their way, it might soon become against the law to boil lobsters, crabs, and other crustaceans alive. Activists are promoting legislation in the House of Lords that recognizes lobsters, squids, octopus, mussels, and other invertebrates as sentient creatures that feel pain and mandates their protection. The proposed ban would extend the Animal Welfare Sentience Bill to cover invertebrates. If passed, the legislation would support animal protections and force the government to consider animals' feelings when writing laws and regulations. The legislation would require chefs and fishmongers to humanely kill mollusks by stunning or chilling them instead of dropping them into boiling water. Before this, humane slaughter legislation in most countries hasn't been interpreted as applying to crustaceans. New Zealand and Switzerland have already banned boiling lobsters alive. If the UK legislation passes, it will also be illegal to wrap live shellfish in shrink wrap and to transport crustaceans through the mail. Maisie Tomlinson, co-director of the organization Crustacean Compassion, commented, quote, There is more than enough evidence for the ability of these sensitive, captivating creatures to feel pain and suffer. They undergo appalling treatment in the food industry, end quote. Recent studies have revealed that 50% of the world's coral reefs have already been destroyed, and another 40% could be lost over the next 30 years. Marine biologists in Hawaii are working to save the world's coral species using cryopreservation, a technique that involves storing coral genetic material. The approach of cryopreservation began years ago. The goal was really to protect the genetic diversity and species diversity of coral reefs said Mary Hagedorn, a marine biologist at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute and the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology.
using procedures similar to those used in human sperm banks, Hagedorn and her team are freezing and storing coral sperm, stem cells, and, in the future, possibly even adult coral fragments. Coral genetic material frozen in this way can be kept for hundreds of years and then used to generate new corals and add genetic diversity. And now for our feature in which WFHB correspondent Brianna Devon covers a story of community activism in the face of environmental catastrophe. Devon speaks with professor and journalist Steve Higgs and community activist Linda Green about the history of PCB contamination after the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency removed three sites from its national priorities list. We turn to Devon for more. Early this summer, the EPA moved to declassify three PCB contamination Superfund sites in the surrounding Bloomington area. The decommission of these cleanup sites from the national priority list draws a decades-long environmental movement to a close. For those who were there, to witness the contamination and the resulting fights for public health and environmental safety, perceptions of whether the EPA's cleanup was successful vary. Yet, there seems to be a consensus that this story of community activists rallying in the wake of environmental catastrophe has earned Bloomington a spot in the history books. I've been a journalist here for 40 years. This is unquestionably the biggest, uh, most consequential issue that this community has ever faced. It became a nationally known fight here. And I'm sure it inspired people to keep fighting in their own communities. People came to Bloomington, Indiana to learn about PCBs. Journalist and professor Stephen Higgs has been following the story of PCP contamination in southern Indiana every step of the way, starting all the way back with the initial contamination. Well, Westinghouse Electric Corporation used to have a manufacturing plant out on Curry Pike on the west side of Bloomington, where they made electrical capacitors, which are the boxes that sit on top of uh, electricity poles. Okay, those capacitors were filled with oils that contain PCBs. The, the, the reason PCBs are in there is because PCBs are almost indestructible. PCBs, you need to heat them to 2000 degrees in order to cause them to break down. So they were perfect for electricity coming into a box where it has to be stored, which of course is very hot. So they used PCBs, uh, electrical companies use PCBs in those boxes that Westinghouse manufactured. And Westinghouse manufactured those from the 50s up until the 70s when we discovered how toxic and dangerous they actually were. So what happened was, while they were manufacturing them out there, of course, things go wrong, right? So when they would have defective capacitors and something would go wrong, they would just take those capacitors and throw them away, put them, in, send them, put them on trucks and take them to various landfills in and around Bloomington that became Superfund sites. The Lemon Lane Landfill, which was the city dump, was a huge one. Neal's Landfill on west, uh, out on West Highway 48 was a big one. Uh, but there were six of those places scattered around Bloomington where old defective capacitors actually went to. So for over 20 years of capacitors have built up, I actually just read today 
that when they excavated Lemon Lane landfill, they found one place where there was 15 feet high of old electrical capacitors that were just piled up and dumped in the same place there. In terms of contamination from one source, Westinghouse, this is the biggest in the entire United States. In the wake of the mass contamination of such a toxic substance, public officials at all levels of government began the urgent search for a cleanup solution. The EPA came out with a proposal to address the contamination along with another common local environmental issue. Monroe County had two major environmental problems. One was the landfill, which was overflowing. We didn't know what we were going to do with our trash, and we had the PCD problem. Well, our city administration, uh, the mayor's office, along with the state of Indiana, the EPA, well, their solution was to build an incinerator, an experimental incinerator, something that has never been built before, had never been done anywhere in the country, that was going to burn the PCBs at 2,000 degrees, and they were going to fuel it with trash. The idea to use solid waste as fuel to burn PCPs in an incinerator may sound innovative in theory, but in practice, issues quickly begin to arise. One problem being that trash would likely be an inefficient resource. Common solid wastes are made up of materials that would likely not be able to heat the PCBs to the intense temperature necessary for their destruction. Another issue presented by the incinerator solution had community members banding together in order to halt the cleanup process. But what they were going to be doing was taking those PCBs, which are highly toxic, almost indestructible uh, materials, and when they destroyed them, they would basically condense that into dioxins and purines. Dioxins being the active agent in Agent Orange, essentially because of the potential health risk that was going to come from a PCB incinerator downwind from the city of Bloomington and Indiana University campus, people in in this community rose up uh, and fought it tooth and nail because we felt it was going to take a terrible problem and make it even worse. Community member Linda Green, a member of People Against the Incinerator, was one such activist. Green explains the difficult road those who opposed the incinerator faced. When the incinerator was first proposed, the city, the county, the state, and the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, and the EPA all okayed the incinerator. So those of us who were fighting the incinerator had a huge battle on our, on our hands with all the public officials against us. It was a very difficult and exhausting process because we were up against everybody. We just we went to every city meeting, every county meeting. We just made a fuss constantly. We did a huge amount of research. In fact, people who had no scientific background were plunged into the science of incineration. Ultimately, their civic engagement and environmental activism was successful, and the incinerator plan was discarded. 
Stephen Higgs explains that though many public officials were sure the incinerator was a safe solution, public outrage at the prospect of further toxic pollution won out. They were still adamant that they were going to build that incinerator. It was not a bad deal. They never backed down from, from the fact that it was a good idea. But politically, it just became untenable. Because when you burn 650,000 cubic yards of contaminated materials, you get 600,000 cubic yards of, of, of contaminated ash. And that had to go someplace. After the hard-fought battle against the incinerator, the EPA still had to come up with a solution to the PCP problem. A local consent decree laid out the plan to capture and remove PCPs from the southern Indiana environment and take the toxic materials elsewhere for treatment. And now, after decades of the capture and removal process, the EPA's move to declassify the Superfund sites signals a successful cleanup. However, some community members are still skeptical. With health concerns at the core of toxic contamination and years of fighting for a safe cleanup, Linda Green points out that people may be wary of believing the EPA's claims. I think there's a tremendous amount of corruption at all levels. I think the official story is making it look like it's all taken care of. I think there's still a problem here. However, Thomas Alcamo, the EPA's remedial project manager for the Bloomington sites, reassures that the cleanup process has been rigorous and that there will be consistent routine checkups of the sites in coming years, as is the standard practice in the declassification process. Stephen Higgs concurs with this opinion that the EPA has done all that can be done. I mean, my sense is as long as they are actually capturing all of the PCBs coming out from under Lemon Lane, I mean, I don't think there's anything else that we could do with Lemon Lane or any of the other places. It's probably been as effective as, as it could be. You know, I mean, they dug up the worst of it, took it away, but it's just so omnipresent, you know, and so indestructible. PCBs have been found in snowmelt on, on Mount Kilimanjaro. Every human being, you have PCBs in your body. I have PCBs in my body. There's not a person on the planet, I don't believe, who doesn't have PCBs and honestly, a couple hundred other toxic chemicals. Specific contamination sites are likely no longer a hazard here in Bloomington, thanks to the EPA Superfund cleanup process and the relentless work of community members. But the now widespread reach of PCBs alludes to a greater problem on the horizon, Environmental threats, contamination-based or otherwise, are likely to escalate as climate change looms and pollution continues to rampage. The story of PCBs in the Bloomington area creates a movement to emulate, one that highlights the importance of community action and protection at the local level. This story of civil engagement in the face of environmental disaster may act as a guide for the next generation of activists. And I'm Juliana Daly. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, 
We are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. Join folks at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Friday, August 13th from 9 to 11 p.m. for meteors and s'mores. Bring the family out to watch the fabulous Perside's Meteor Shower while enjoying a treat over the fire. DNR staff will provide the treats and keep the campfire going. Wear appropriate clothing and footwear suitable for the outdoors and bring bug spray. Lawn chairs or blankets are recommended. Please register for the event at ndavenportmikusak at dnr.in.gov. And explore Monroe Lake Paddling Trip at the Allens Creek State Recreation Area is scheduled for Sunday, August 15th from 6 to 8 p.m. This paddling trip allows you to see backwaters, wetlands, bays, and slow-moving streams. You need at least two hours of paddling experience. Bring your own canoe or kayak, or you can rent one. Registration is required at bit.ly backslash explore dash AUG 15 dash 2021. There will be a snake chat at Brown County State Park on Tuesday, August 17th from 11 to 11.30 a.m. in the shelter house outside the Nature Center. The program will teach you all about Indiana's native snakes. There will be live snakes at the program. When was the last time you climbed the fire tower at McCormick's Creek State Park? Take advantage of the fire Fire Tower hike on Saturday, August 21st from 10 to 11 a.m. Meet naturalist Sarah at the Canyon Inn to take a hike to the Fire Tower and climb it if you dare. Along the trail, you will learn about McCormick's Creek natural and historical past. It's time for the Full Sturgeon Moon Hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, August 21st from 9 to 10.30 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Oak Ridge Shelter for a night under the Full Sturgeon Moon on Trail 7. Learn all the folklore and history of the Full Sturgeon Moon and why it is called that. The trail is considered easy. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by WFHB correspondent Brianna Devon. David Lyman assembled the script, and Linda Green and Cynthia Brubaker edited it. Myself, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar, and Cynthia Brubaker produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. 
And I'm Cynthia Brubaker. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.